Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Creating the Future. Super excited to be back with you today because today we get to share a special teaching. Uh, some of the what we do on Creating the Future is conversations, and uh, we love those conversations. But as I started the podcast a while back, I wanted to make sure that I was able to put in some of the teaching uh, that I do here with our staff at Arise Church. We do a lot of leadership conversation, uh, a lot of conversations about culture, and uh, some of the better ones I wanted to make sure that I made available to other people. Uh, It's actually something where the staff has sometimes asked to record it and send it out to people, and that was one of the original intentions of this podcast. And so uh, today I want to talk on the subject of post-Christianity, and uh, we are going to jump into this conversation in just a second that I had with my staff. So let me just share a couple quick things. First of all, my apologies uh, for the fact that this is not in video. This is just audio, and so if you're watching on YouTube, it's just going to be the image, but if you're listening to the audio podcast, you'll probably not notice a difference. Uh, secondly, the audio quality is not going to be great because when I do these teachings, uh, it's literally me just in a room and I record them on my phone. So the quality is not amazing. And I do apologize for that. It's probably not what it normally is. Uh, but if you can get over those two things, I think what I'm going to share with you today is something uh, that can really uh, expand your mind as we look at first culture, second culture, third culture. What is post-Christianity? Are we in it? Uh, how does it affect us? And I think you are really going to enjoy this conversation today. And hopefully it will illuminate some things for you about what's happening in our world. So without anything further, let's jump into this conversation. I had with my staff. All right, guys, so the last few weeks we've gotten into some deep conversations. Um, I think we're going to continue on with that right now, jumping into some deep philosophical conversations, uh, things that I've been studying, things that are rolling around in my head, which is really what this Tuesday meeting is all about. I think that's why I love it so much, because uh, I get to get the things that roll around in my head out. And I'll be honest, I haven't had, an exp- a, a, I haven't had that for a long time, <laughs> you know? Um, nobody wants to sit and hear these things. Um, you know, I guess people probably, I think they do enjoy it, but whatever. Okay, so we're walking into and actually are already in a post-Christian world in the West. And America is the last one falling and the last domino of that. And uh, more and more and more you're hearing about this post-Christian world and what that means. So I just want to unpack it. I want to give some ideas around it. There's really a whole lot more I would like to talk about with this which will probably lead into other conversations later, later that will kind of flow in and out of it. But um, just some thoughts about it. Uh, Post-Christian actually started, um, we think it's a, a modern term. It would make sense for it to be a modern term. It actually started in the 18th century with Australia. It's the first time that, that I could find that, that people were refer, referred to as post-Christian. Um, you know, there's jokes about the fact that, that, you know, Australia was started as a penal community, right? We know that. So in other words, they were all prisoners. Yeah. That's how Australia was started, as far as with the British, not the natives. Um, but there's jokes about, you know, we in, in America, we got off the Mayflower and we prayed, you know, as religious people. In Australia, they got off the, the boat and had an orgy. <laughs> 
um, because these radically different. That's the way it's joked about. You got these radically different startings of two different continents. One was kind of the worst people that we do not want you in Britain for one reason or another. You're a convict of some sort. We're shipping you out. The other is people running from religious persecution and running to the United States. And so Australia is actually the first time that you hear that post-Christian term used because it was not Christian at all there and was an, uh, was against Christianity. Um, was Anna, what's the word I'm looking for? Anti. Anti, but I don't know. Anyway, so let's just define it real fast and then we're going to break down what it actually means, look at it real fast. And so if you look at, in order to have a post-Christian, you have to have a pre-Christian, you have to have some other things. And this is the way I drew it on your... I always get the marker. Throw it away. Throw it, away. Yeah. Throw it in the trash. I think we should throw it in the trash. It's not on the ground. It's not on the ground. <laughs> it's practically in. That's all. Rebound it. I was just looking. <laughs> all right. So you end up with this, what you would refer to as first culture. The the. The uh, cultural apologists refer to it this way. So first culture is what you start with, which is pre-Christianity. Um, and it's important that we start here because I'm going to come back to it and help it make some sense before. So this is, you know, the Romans, the Greeks. Um, this is people before Christianity. When it comes to their understanding of God... Uh, God is usually uh, someone you fear and is usually pretty sporadic. Sporadic, is that how you spell it? Um, God's someone you fear, someone who's sporadic. Um, there is no like kind of universal theme around pre-Christianity. Every continent you go to, every city you go to have different gods, different ideas of how they worship the God. All kinds of, of, of just different you know things there. Um, but the, the, they're very spiritual, I should Put that in here. So very spiritual, but they have no concept of Christ because this is pre-Christianity. Pre-Christianity then bleeds into the second one, which is you could probably guess second culture, and this would be Christianity. Uh, Christianity. Uh, revolutionizes pre-Christianity. First culture is completely taken over by the second culture, which is Christianity. Now, when we say Christianity, this also opens up the door for the mainstream big three to abound. Monotheism, monotheism religions, which is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So coming out of this, for the last thousands of years after the time of Christ, you have three primary religions that are abounding around the world. There's some others with Buddhism and Hinduism make the big five of all, but there's three that actually make sense scientifically. Buddhism and Hinduism, neither one make any sense scientifically. Hinduism is actually a playback to this, uh, where you got idols and you're worshiping that. If you look at Hinduism today, that's what that's what Old Testament Canaanites and stuff did back then. It's very similar. Um, you know, George, you might speak to that. It's all in that Indian culture. So, uh, But second culture is, is all Christianity. It's a monotheistic and when I say all Christianity, it's not. It's monotheistic, but Christianity is the big one. Uh, monotheistic, uh, they tend to be creedal. In other words, they have creeds they follow. Uh, this could be books, uh, you know, that they're following uh, within this, like we would have the Bible. 
uh, book of unchanging uh, belief. And this radical change happens from first culture pre-Christianity to second culture Christianity. And second culture really affects the entire world to such a degree that it's, it's, it's really hard to actually fathom how deep it goes. Uh, when, I, when I say that, and I don't know that we have time to unpack all of it, but like, like literally everything good about America or the West and freedoms and such, 99% of it stems from Christianity. So if you enjoy the fact that you get paid for your job, that's Christianity. The middle class, which sets up everything else to work inside of our governmental system, comes from Christianity. The roots of all of these things that are so deep, the fact that you can own property, a lot of you own your own homes or are buying, you know. The fact that you can own property stems from a Christ, from Christian concepts. When you come back here, vast majority of that stuff was not there. Yeah. You did not own property. The government owned property. They could steal it from you at any time. Uh, there was no middle class. You had the upper class of the elites and everybody else who just served them as slaves and things like that. Christianity changed everything. And it's hard to fathom, when I say everything, everything. When you start breaking it down, if you value education and, and education for all, you had education back here, but it was a very limited education for like the top one percenters. Education for all and the fact that everybody is valued Slavery, non-slavery, like all of this stuff, Christian, Christianity changed the world, so to speak. And that's not to say Christianity is perfect, by no means, uh, but these concepts changed the world, okay? And monotheism in general. And then it leads to the third one, which is third culture. And this is where we are at today, post-Christianity. Uh Post-Christianity. Um, now, this is interesting because post-Christianity is similar to what Christianity did to the first culture, what second culture did to first, third culture does to second. Yeah. Second culture defined itself against pre-Christianity. It was radically different and wanted to, to destroy all of pre-Christianity in, in this, right? Third culture or post-Christianity defines itself not as something new but something against this this is a restraint to keep us from where we want to go, the utopia that always comes from secular humanism that they talk about. Um, so we don't, want to just, we don't want to just move on from Christianity. It's not that. We want to define ourselves against Christianity. So third culture is anti-Christian. Uh, third culture is anti-Christian. It wants to deconstruct Christianity. That's going to come up in a minute. Deconstruct or destroy Wants to get rid of this culture. We're going to talk a lot about why and all that in just a few minutes. Um, this, and we'll get there. This wants the king without the kingdom. Wants, you know, progress without the presence of God. All, all these kind of things that we'll get to in a minute. Um, it basically wants to continue on. And this, I guess, is what we need to see here. There's a continuing on of progress. Which, by the way, progress is a Christian concept. By its nature, is a Christian concept. But anyway, because before you had Christianity, you didn't have, you had the recycling of everything that just went on. You didn't even have a calendar as we know it today. You didn't have going year to year. Year to year is a progress idea that you could progress through life. It allowed for technology. Anyway, but you have this progress that's going on.
So post-Christianity would define itself, third culture would define itself against this because they believe this is actually stopping progress. We have to get rid of this because we can't progress past this. Uh, so that's, that's what begins to happen right there. So we want, we want all of the fruits of this without the things that restrain from this. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. So um, the ground in America... Uh, as we see it today, has been receding for a long time and, and shifting for a long time. And without anybody voting on it, without a real argument about it, without winning a debate on it, this ground has radically shifted underneath our feet. And most of the time, we're probably too distracted to notice it. Yeah. It's such a gradual shift, and we're going to show some cool stories of, of that in a minute, but it's such a gradual shift that we don't even notice it. And our core presuppositions of who we are as the West it's not just America, but we're in America. Of who we are as the West have been receding out from underneath us. Um, years ago, I was on a prayer retreat, um, and I was in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, and went to the, uh, the Bruton Parish, which is where like a lot of our founding fathers and stuff like that uh, uh, went to church. It's right there in Williamsburg, which is like one of our first cities and blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, so I'm in there, and I'm praying. I'm just really seeking the heart of God. Uh, just praying, and God gave me this vision that I didn't fully understand, and maybe I still don't fully, but it definitely has to do with this, and it was a vision of America, and the books that were holding up America were all breaking down, so it was crumbling upon itself because of the philosophies that built it are no longer there. You know, John Adams was very clear. John Adams, who was not necessarily a Christian as we would call him today, although he's probably as Christian as most Christians are today, but he wouldn't refer to himself as a Christian at that time. John Adams said that America will only work on the values of Christianity. And we'll see why in a second. It's not that you have to be Christian, but you cannot remove the values of the Christianity because it won't work. Um, anyway, and so uh, the secular humanism, post-Christianity, that's what secular humanism is another word for this. Uh, humanism is not bad. Christianity started humanism. Secular humanism is trying to have humanism without Christ. So... Secular humanism. <clears throat> humanism is just an emphasis on the person and, and becoming better in progress. Secular is trying to do it without God. Um, and so in our world, what's happened is it's almost like breathing. In fact, I'm writing a blog right now. I'm halfway through it. Uh, it's, it it sucks, talks about this. It's almost like breathing in our culture that it's so natural that you don't notice it. Until, and we're going to get here in a few minutes, until you start suffocating. It's like drinking, or breathing in a poison that you don't notice until you start coughing and you can't breathe. Yeah. Right now, America is starting to cough and they're starting to realize that there's holes in this idea. And it's a huge opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to step in and go, hey, you notice this isn't working? Right. Have you even noticed we shifted? <laughs> Which we'll get into all that in a second. Um, and so it's like breathing. We're all connected to the internet, through our phones. And, and so we have one idea that's penetrating especially in big liberal cities, but that's also true outside of that because we're all connected to the global world through the internet and our phones. All right, so seven humanist beliefs of the post-Christian West. This actually comes from, uh, from uh, Mark um, Sayers uh, from his Disappearing Church book. He says this, number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self and self-expression. So this morning there was a joke made about the movie Frozen. Right, The movie Frozen and much of what's being taught to our kids and has been for a long time 
revolves around this concept that you are good. Just let the real you come out. Let it go. Let it go. Let all the restraints come out. You just be you. That only works, and we'll, let's just go ahead and jump down there. Number five is humans are inherently good. That's a, that's a part. Oh, sorry. It's on the back side for you. <laughs> you just be you only works if you're inherently good. Right. If you're not inherently good, don't just be you. Because you being you could be a bad person. <laughs> right? Uh, that's one of the big differences between Christianity and secular humanism. Secular humanism believes you are a good person in your nature. Left to yourself, you will be good. Society and Christianity and religion and traditions, that's what makes you bad. Left to yourself, you will be good. Christianity says, no, left to yourself, you will be bad. That's why you need Jesus. Um, and so this 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 idea that, that just be you, self-definition, self-expression, that's what it's all about. Just be you. And it's so subtle that most of us can sing the songs and know it, but we haven't even put our finger on it to go, wait, that's not true. No. All right, number two. Traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom. Restrict. Restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. So what do we see? We have to reshape, deconstruct, or destroy second culture if it's hindering us from the freedoms and this this, this happiness and the self-definition and self-expression that we want. You can't have it. Um, I heard somebody say this recently, and I thought this was so profound. So profound. I have never seen it this way. Let, let this sink in. They said in the political world, on the right and the left, they're both fighting for the same thing, and both of them are secular humanist, and they don't work. So what are you talking about? Both of them are fighting for freedom. On the, on the right side, it's freedom from government. If I just have more freedom from government, this is what we're talking about right here. If I just have more freedom from government, I'll find happiness. The government's what's the problem. The institution is the problem. That's the far right. The far left says, if I can just have freedom from the institutions that hold me back, like church and religion and all those, then I'll be happy. They're both fighting for freedom as if freedom is going to make you happy by itself. Freedom doesn't make you happy. That's probably a whole other talk. Uh, freedom, in fact, happiness is not even the purpose of life. <laughs> Contentment is a much better way of saying it. But freedom doesn't make you happy. In fact, the people who are most happy oftentimes learn how to restrain their freedoms. If you're going to be married, you have to restrain your freedom. Right. You can't just do anything you want to do. Your life doesn't belong to you only anymore. Yeah. But this idea, this radical individualism and this freedom, can just I can just be free and that's going to make me happy. That, that's what holds it together. I want freedom without responsibility. Um, and that ultimately doesn't bring happiness. It actually brings some problems that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, number three, the world is inevitably, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will power the progress progression to utopia. When you study secular humanism, there's this word that gets used a lot of utopia. You can't study it without it. Utopia is the end game that everything is going to. It's the end game of progress. It's where everything is good, everything is right. And there is this sense inside of the secular humanist worldview that says we will end up there one way or another. That sense has bled into our world in a lot of ways that a lot of people look at the future and they're going, we're going to end up good one way or another. We have to get rid of this stuff, but we're going to end up here. We're going to win. How we win, we don't know. There's a lot of very similar idols between the secular humanism world and the Christian world. This is one of them. Yeah. 
In fact, I think that's a whole other talk I'll do because it's really very interesting. They have their own Eden. They have their own salvation story. It's all from a different perspective. But that's a whole other conversation that would take another hour. But part of that is we believe you get to heaven. They believe you bring heaven onto earth. Humanism doesn't believe in a spiritual realm, so therefore I have to bring heaven here on earth. So they, but we both believe we win. No matter what happens, we're going to end up winning. Christianity believes that. So does secular humanism. And it's just this inward, or this onward move towards progress. Number four, uh, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Tolerance. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about the issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. So if you are now stopping progress, which progress is defined by you be you, whoever you are, you just, you know, if you're stopping progress, that cannot be tolerated. We are marching towards utopia. And uh, uh, that's also part of what makes this almost religious is the way we've given ourselves to this philosophy fully. So within religion, there's this, there's this spirit, whether it's right or wrong, of I've given myself to this thing fully, whatever the religion is, and I'm not going to be changed. This is just it, right? In secular humanism, you get the exact same thing. I've given myself to this fully. I'm not going to talk about any other ideas. This is just it. My idea is it my way or the highway. It's very religious in that sect, which, by the way, atheism is considered a religion in the United States, which would be secular humanism, and it all falls in the same categories. So, uh, but, but it's very religious in that way. It's, they just believe it. So number five, I've already said humans are inherently good. Number six, large institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. This book, by the way, was written several years ago, way before the stuff we're facing right this second. Uh, number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is, lo is lauded. That's kind of what he's already said there in the other ones. Um, and what happens is, as you remove those authorities, you become your own authority. You become your own god. You become the own master of your own destination, which is a big part of secular humanism. And um, so, all right, this is where we want to really get a few thoughts on these beliefs. Any questions or comments so far? Um, yeah, so you made a comment. I was hoping you could elaborate just a little bit on it. You said freedom doesn't make you happy. But then you did have that caveat about freedom without responsibilities and things like that. Like, what would be, what would be a response to someone who right. says, Freedom without restraint does not make you happy. More freedom is not going to make you happy. You need a level of freedom. People in North Korea right now are going to struggle to find identity and happiness and joy in life because they have a lack of freedom. In America, we have an overabundance of freedom, as if that's going to make us happy. Um, I mean, that's, that's what we're facing right now. We're so addicted to freedom in America today that if somebody says you have to wear masks, some people lose their minds. <laughs> Because you're, you're regulating the freedom and you're fighting against the institution. All right. So it's not that freedom is wrong by any means. We want freedom. Jesus brings spiritual freedom. What we're going to get to in a minute is the difference between the physical side and the spiritual side and the emotional side. No, yeah, no. I'm, I'm with that thought 100%. I just wanted to see how if someone would have challenged that, how would you move up with that? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 
Anybody else before we step into the next deep water? All right, a few thoughts on what Mark Sayers said right here. A few thoughts on these beliefs. Number one, uh, I guess I said this in the beginning, but these beliefs have not been argued but assumed. That's, a, that's kind of a scary place that we've just been indoctrinated into these ideas. You're going to recognize them more and more as we talk about this without ever realizing that we ever chose to believe this. And it has come strongly into the church, which is where we're going to end up in a few minutes too. Um, so it's just interesting. We, most of us haven't processed it. We haven't thought deeply about it. We didn't watch a debate about it. We didn't see an argument about it. It just kind of happened, and we find ourselves in this world that all of a sudden everything is different. You know. Um, number two, uh, secular secularism, secular humanism wants the kingdom without the king. So we want the values of Christianity. We want the values of the king without the king. The kingdom without the king. We want these values that Christianity brought into the world, which literally make up the foundations for how we function as a society. So you cannot have science without Christianity because Christianity created the values of saying, hey, don't lie. Don't steal other people's science and say it's yours. Don't cheat on your science. These are foundational, so foundational that we just assume them, but they are foundational that comes with the Christian ethic that was brought into the world that says, all right, if we're going to function, we have to function this way. You remove those. Who's to take a scientist? Who's to stop a scientist from lying on his research? You know what I mean? And so what happens is you want the kingdom without the king. And, um, you know, I started the conversation with, with Gus the other day on the apologetics thing I did. I actually stopped him right off the bat because um, was it George Floyd or was it Ahmaud Arbery? I forget which was which was Ahmaud Arbery at that point. And it, and it said something about just social justice right then. And I just stopped him and I said, what, if Christianity is not true, what is wrong with what just happened? Wow. Nobody asked those questions. Those are the apologetic questions we have to be asking as we step into the future. Because nobody thinks about it. So they just go, oh, that's wrong. But why is it wrong? If you take God out of the equation, why is it wrong? Is it because everybody believes their own? ideas of being good or not good when you take God out of the equation? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. There's no ultimate reason for it to be to be wrong to kill well, a mod according to number five, humans are inherently good. When left to themselves, they'll be good. But those humans weren't good. So if I were to take the secular humanistic view, it would be similar to what Debbie just said. I would say society says what's good or bad. But what happens to Nazi Germany? Where society said it was good to exterminate millions of Jewish people, and we forget how close that was right. 70 years ago. Right. <laughs> well, that's obviously not good. Nobody should say that's good. Nobody would that's want to say that's good. good. But if you were to believe in that secular humanist idea and it's just whatever culture says, well, then that was good. There's nothing wrong with it. If it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world at the end of the day and, um, and, and you know, macroevolution is true and it really is goo to you via the zoo and, and God is not in there somewhere. Like, like there could be some of that. I'm not like the hater on all of evolutionary stuff. But if God's not in there somewhere and it really is survival of the fittest, then whoever's fittest should survive. That's the story of the world. So if I can kill somebody, why not? If I can take what they have and I can become stronger by taking them, 
Why can we not all play Fortnite in the real world? Right. If you guys who don't know Fortnite, you run around and you get treasure boxes. But when you kill somebody, you take everything they have. You become stronger because you get all their stuff. You get their guns and stuff. Why? Why not? Yeah. You know what I mean? If if it really is survival of the fittest. So. How do you respond to your question? What do you mean? When you asked him the question, or did you ask him the question or no? How did he respond? How did Gus respond? Oh no, with Gus, I just started talking about apologetics right off the bat. It was less of a question for him, and more of a I posed the I did what I just did here. I posed the question and I answered it. Gotcha. Yeah. Like Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so much of what we value in society is built upon Christianity. And eventually, as you pull the foundation out from it, it's going to begin falling upon itself. Um, you know, Christianity is all about progress. And, and at the end of the day, if you remove Christianity, it's hard to have progress apart from some. And, and when I say Christianity, I don't even mean true Christianity. I don't even mean following Jesus. I just mean those foundational principles of Christianity that are, I mean, they're 2,000 years old almost now in the world, that they're just assumed. And eventually, if you take Christ out of it, eventually even those foundations disappear as well. But All right, number three. In many ways, in larger cities, we're living in the progressive utopia vision. I don't think we got the one. Christianity. Oh, Christianity is progressive, sorry. So think about this. The utopian vision of this, you know, perfect, you know, nothing's ever perfect. I don't know that it's truly perfect, but this really great, amazing world. We're living in it right now, especially the bigger cities in the West. You go to any of the bigger cities, you can go get your $5 coffee. It can taste amazing. You can go to Winthrop and see some amazing architecture and amazing uh Beautiful, you know, uh, Renaissance type, uh, not Renaissance, but um, Roman uh, era, like, you know, statues and, and stuff like that. I guess it would be Renaissance too, but um, uh, that style of everything. So you got this beautiful architecture. You go to any major city in America, you go to well, go to New York City and, and, and um, uh, what's the park in the middle of New York City? Central Park. Central Park, Central Park is amazing. It is a... If you just go to New York City, forget the city, just go to the park. The park is amazing that you walk out of the city and it feels like you're in the middle of the country like that. Like the architecture and the way they designed it to pull this off, like it's just – Central Park is insane. Um, right, so you go to any of these major cities, you got these incredible parks. you got these incredible systems of the city that allow the city to function well. Think about it. Like, like you can go get a steak on any corner. You can feed yourself whatever you want to feed yourself. You can do all these things. Um, uh, on top of that, in a, in a major liberal city, you can, you can have any desire that you have satisfied pretty much. Yeah. Right? So, you know, any sexual desire, any physical desire, any, any uh, food desire, any music. arts, music, any music desire, it's utopia. Right? Well, let's ask that question. Is it really utopia? Does it really work? So is post-Christian delivering on its promise? Is it a picture of that future? Y'all tell me. If your definition of freedom is saying you can do whatever you want to do, then yeah. the answer would be yes. But that's a manipulated definition of freedom. Mm -hmm. I think it's a facade smoke and mirrors and very shallow because people can feel like that and yet they're dying on the inside. 
they're depressed and they're suicidal and lonely and apathetic and they're using that to fill mm -hmm. a void that's never fillable. You're a great example from being out on the West Coast and, you know, I don't, were you guys ever in the city city? Like in Portland? We were or? on the suburbs of Portland. Like Portland's a great example. Portland's right. going to be a very liberal city. Well, they're creating the utopia. Not Portland anymore. Portland is, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a mess. That's kind of the end story of this. Right. <laughs> well, and so my my issue, or my, I don't know, my challenge in my head with especially number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. That doesn't work. Like, take out Christianity and Jesus from all of this. It just doesn't work. Like, Why would you be tolerant if atheism is true? Right. Tolerance is another Christian value that's absorbed in like and just if assumed. I don't like you and you come in my store that I own, I don't have to serve anybody if I don't want to because you have purple hair or you whatever. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make logical sense if you really dive into it. But it's work. it seems to be working right now. I don't know. But let's ask that question. Is it, it working? Works for it works when you want it to work. Unless you're a Christian. Because it's tolerant of everybody except for Christians or Christian values. And that's my, my struggle. It's like you can't, don't say you're tolerant of everyone and intolerance can't be tolerated, but you're not tolerant towards right. people who don't believe like you believe. Mm -hmm. It's just, it was interesting what you were saying about us in America having freedom <coughs> without restraint and just seeing, especially among my generation, that kids nowadays are getting to live a lot like they want, but you could probably speak better to this than me, but I mean, just statistically seeing the depression rates among young teenagers and kids my age, or even when I went on missions last year to Norway and a lot of those other countries, it was the Scandinavia countries, I mean, the even the pastors and the missionaries were telling us that these kids, like, they get to go out, party, drink, literally do whatever they want, and their parents encourage them. Like, in Norway, they literally will have party buses, and, like, that's their problem. It's insane. And these kids, like, they seem really happy, but when you look at the statistics, like, it tells you everything. Science how doesn't prove that this is working. Yeah, so even with the freedom without restraints, it will work for a time because it's pleasurable, and then they're, they're just, like you said, they're seeking and searching for the eternity set within them. And, never and it's never-ending quest until they're either... Like the story of the guy you gave where he's he's lost everything or they're dead or they're wondering how the heck they even ended up in that spot. Well, and I think as we look at this number three that in many cities we're living in this progressive utopian vision, yeah. what's interesting is that our government is moving more and more and more towards a socialistic um, mm -hmm. bent because there's a healthy number of people who cannot enjoy the utopian vision, the utopian pleasures. And so because it's here and it's available, but you've got money and I don't have money. Right. That's not fair. Right. So you need to give me some of your money so that I can enjoy this too. That's, that's key. So there's two big parts to answer the question. Uh, first one is what, what Tina just said. So the utopian thing only works until you leave the city. Who's, who's growing the coffee beans that you just spent five bucks on? What country did they just come from? Right. How much are those people making over there? Exactly. 
Who's actually building the buildings that we look at our architecture with? How are they doing with this? Who's actually driving the trucks to bring all the food in and out? Who's actually catching the food, growing the food, killing the food, whatever? It only works as long as we have blinders on to see our own border of, of Tampa or Portland or whatever. You know, It only works as long as you put those blinders on and you refuse to look over the wall and go, my utopia is built on the backs of those people. My utopia looks a whole lot like going back to here, Romans who had the one percenters that had all the slaves that made them successful. So in order to fix that, now we got to make sure everybody has it. But when everybody has it, you end up losing everything. It doesn't you can't balance everything like that. <coughs> but that's that's the first issue with it. As soon as you look beyond the walls of that utopia, you find out that in order for the utopia to exist, it has to be built on the backs of I'm going to say slaves, but people definitely not experiencing the utopia. Right. And that's especially true. I mean, how much of everything we're wearing right now was built in China or made manufactured in China? Or some sweatshop somewhere, like you know, that that by their standards might be higher than average, like they might be okay. But if you work there, that'd be hell on earth. Right. So in order for our utopia to exist, that has to exist. That's injustice. <laughs> right. The second side is what Chris and several of you were alluding to. So you are not just made up of the physical, you are made up of three parts: your body, mind, and spirit, right? And people will say it different ways. The soul is all of it or the soul is part of it. I don't know. different debates about that. The point is yeah. you can have all of your physical needs met and at the same time your mind can be going crazy. Yeah. Why is it that right now in America depression and anxiety is skyrocketing? Is it not a coal in the – a canary in the coal mine if you guys know that example mm-hmm. for you guys? Who, so coal miners used to run a canary because some people don't. Uh, coal miners used to run a canary into the coal mines because of the, um, the, the the gases in the coal mines that could kill you, but you couldn't taste it, you couldn't feel it. So they'd run a canary in there, and if the canary died, they'd keep a canary with them. And if the canary died, they knew they had to get out because the canary would die real fast. So is it not a canary in the coal mine to look around at the anxiety, the severe depression in the middle of a utopia? Yeah. This is what's crazy for all of us who are a little older in this room is watching the younger crowd lose their mind with depression and anxiety, and they're not facing anything. It's like, it's like you know, everybody who's a little older, and probably all of us in this room one degree or another, it's like, we've lived through some hell. We've lived through some crap. We've lived through some things that actually were difficult, and that's not even compared to the Vietnam generation or the World War II generation or those guys who lived through much worse. We have a generation that's had everything handed to them. Everything in life has been made easy. Utopia has happened for them. And they're depressed, losing their mind, can't hold a job, can't function, can't, anxiety is. So, like, how do you, like. So, utopia doesn't work. How do you get that across, though? Like, other than just saying, like, it just doesn't work. Like, I mean. We'll get to the church's responsibility in this soon. Everybody shows it doesn't work. Like. You know, there's probably not a better example of freedom without responsibility and how it doesn't work than our sexual ethic in America. So the 60s and the sexual revolution taught us free sex is good. Freedom and sexuality is beautiful. Make love, not war, war, right? So so we ran with that. And what do you have 60 years later? But marriage is an afterthought. In in the last 20 years, it has shifted from you got married and then you had a baby to nobody does that. It's almost like it's such a shuttle shift. And nobody's even talking about it to to, we're going to live together for a long time. And maybe have a baby, maybe still live together, maybe not. Yeah. Like, like this shift, and that's been like in the last 20 years. That 
when Ada and I got married, that wasn't common. Like it, I mean, it happened, but that wasn't the norm, you know, in this, this shift. But now you have, you know, kids growing up without fathers like crazy. Mom's paying the price of that. So they're working two or three jobs trying to take care of the absent father. Yeah, so how's this freedom working? Right. <laughs> right? It sounds good. It seems great because it gratifies the flesh. Ultimately, nobody no, notices it. doesn't it work. Because it's like if we were to use that reference moral compass, if I'm off just one degree on my compass, but I go across the world, I end up hundreds of miles off of my track. Yeah. And that's what happened is it's not like this drastic thing. Like the next day, suddenly we went from, you know, hippies, making right. love everywhere to legalizing pedophilia. Right. But we're on this slow right. one degree track. And, and you've heard me talk about legalizing pedophilia for a long time, haven't mm -hmm. you? Since back in the beginning of the homosexual arguments, I was like, bro, if that goes through, you have to let this go through. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same argument. I you can't give one without going the other. But it's just that slow fade of that just, mm -hmm. let's just slip one degree. And over time, that one degree has turned into, we're completely, have missed the mark. Well, I've said this before, I heard someone say it recently. It's one thing to, to be on a slippery slope. It's yeah. another thing to ski on that slope. Right. I said that on the stage. No, no, I, I didn't. Get for that. I may have. I put it on a blog. Something. I may have said it on the stage. I don't remember. I know I put it on the blog. But I think that's so true. We, we go from, oh gosh, where our, our society is slipping to we're driving it. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what this, this riles me the deepest personally is as a parent, you know? Because mm -hmm. when Ben's 32, where I am today, uh, it'll be like, oh, he'll be living in a wasteland, you know? And we actually had this conversation with the Clearwater Friday and uh, on the drive over we had this conversation about, you know, as parents putting our foot down and not falling prey to culture, mm -hmm. the culture of just shoving our kid in front of a TV or shoving our kid in front of an Xbox or whatever, and mm -hmm. not that we're judging people who let their kids play games, but what I'm saying is like, you know, it's the whole idea of whatever happened to the American homestead dream. Like, I want to live on 10 acres so my kid can learn the trade. Whatever, whatever happened to this idea of like kids having stock in the family unit and taking out the trash and tilling the ground to plant the seeds and actually working for what they have. And like we were talking about the struggle as parents and we all, a lot of us are feeling who have young kids, um, the struggle of like they come home screaming and crying because this is cool and what we're doing isn't cool, but we want them to be cool. But, at but what we cost? also want them to be... At what cost are they going right. to be cool? You know, are they gonna are they literally gonna lose the foundation of their salvation on the on the 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 front line of being cool? Like and so we were just talking through yep. those super strange and, and like, happy birthday you, deep conversation. Right, happy birthday to me, like, I'm thirty, now we gotta talk about our kids and how to raise them. But like <laughs> how like how how do you make sure you stay righteous with your children and you know, no, it's I love you more than they do. I said no. You know, I think you've said that before. Mm -hmm. Um but when they turn 18, they lose their mind and because I've been so strict or, I don't know, like it's just, it's, there's just so much. Like I don't want him to be. I don't want to, I don't want to chase that rabbit trail too much because right, I got a, trail a whole sure. big thing is to end with for what we do. But I will say this. I believe that part of the answer is that, is that the first time your kids are exposed to the consequences and the things of all this should not be when they can do it themselves. Right. It needs to be from you. You know, it's a pet peeve of mine that parents are like, you know, I sent my kid off to college and they lost their faith and this liberal colleges. Blah, blah. 
The problem with that is if the first time they heard that argument comes yeah. from some PhD who's so smart, and all of a sudden good. they're just like, wow, there's this whole other world. Yeah. If the first time they're exposed to that world is at college, they're going to jump right on it. Yeah. But if you expose them to that world in your house and you show the other side, hey, your professor is going to say this, and there's some truth to that, don't, don't dismiss it. But then there's, there's this thing too. And so when they hear the professor say it, they're like, yeah, hey, I've heard that before. It's a whole other thing. Yeah. And I think it's that way with all of these sin things, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, teenagers are rational enough most of the time to understand, if you like the sexual ethic, right? Look around. Is this working? Right. Look around. <laughs> is this working? I know you want it. Is it working? Okay. All right, let's, let's jump on to the, uh, the next part right here. Number four, post-Christianity means that the way Americans have been doing church must fundamentally change. Fundamentally change. All right, so here's the funny thing about this. It's probably not going to go in the direction that you might think it's going to go. So let me tell you a brief story of missiology and uh, where these concepts come from. Some stuff you've heard me say, uh, some stuff that are good, but, but shifting uh, as we step into a more progressive society that's more post-Christian. Um, so in this idea really started from a missionary by the name of um, uh, Newbigin. Um, a British missionary was his first name, uh, Leslie Newbigin. In the 1930s, and this comes back to something I think you said or Josh said, in the 1930s he went to India as a missionary, uh, stayed his whole life there, spent his whole life there. It's a time where you didn't have all the updates of what's happening in Britain, and he wasn't probably cared anyway. You know, He's spending his life in India. Comes back in the 1970s, oh back into Britain. He steps back in and goes, this is just like being in India. This is not a Christian. This is not the Christian Britain that I left in the '30s, coming out of World War One before World War Two. Radically different world. But what he did is he stepped out of it, stepped back into it, and expected it to be the same, and it wasn't even close to the same. And so, um, th there was a movie years ago. It's one of the cheesy Christian movies. Uh, you know, there's there was lots of them back in the day, but when I was early on in, in youth ministry, and I don't know. Something about time or timekeeper or something. I don't know, but but this dude like goes back in time, right? Or go actually goes forward in time. Sorry, you probably had to watch it. Your dad made you watch it. It's terrible. <laughs> but the concept, part of the concept of it was this: this dude from I don't remember what it was, like the fifties or forties or something like that, gets in a time machine, ends up in where we are today. Can you can you picture that? It's such a subtle 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 shift that we don't notice it. We're the frog in the kettle being boiled. We don't notice it. He steps into it. He's going, oh, my God, what is happening? What is this? What is that? Why would I ever be on TV? There's a scene where he's walking through uh, the store in the mall, and there's, like, the mannequin wearing lingerie. Yeah. Like, we would never think anything like that or about that. He's grabbing all the stuff and, like, putting it over the top of the mannequin with lingerie, you know? Um, and it just paints this picture. And that was 20 years ago. That's an old movie. But it paints this picture of how far we've come. So in a very real, true sense, so Leslie Newbegin literally experienced that. So he goes to India. He's in Indian culture as a missionary, sharing the gospel. Comes back to Britain and goes, I'm still a missionary here. What happened? Like, this is not the Christian Britain that I left in the 30s. You know, I go, go to the 70s. The sexual revolution had already happened there too. You know, you got stuff going on TV. That's a brand new thing and, and stuff that would have never been tolerated normally. And just a, just a whole different world. And so Newbegin is the first one who's credited with the idea of in the West, we need missionaries in our own country. Mm -hmm. And credited with the idea of the church has to think like a missionary. Yeah. 
Now, sadly, all these years later, a lot of churches still don't think this way. And that, that's been, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Um, and sadly, a lot of churches still don't think this way. But he said, hey, we're coming back. We have to think of ourselves like missionaries in order to reach this culture because this culture is not Christian any longer. And even when I say Christian in that sense, I'm not talking about everybody was believers in Jesus. Right. But those fundamental standards of acceptance of Christianity were no longer there. He said, hey, we, we got we to gotta change this. And so he started creating this idea. We were just waiting on you the whole time. Hey, nature calls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, so, so Newbegin creates this idea that the church is a missionary to its own neighborhood. Now, you've heard me talk about this probably, or at least in passing or whatever. That's the way we try to think around here. That's well and good. That's beautiful. So why do we preach the way we do? Because we're recognizing this is not a Christian world. They don't know the Bible. Why do I always give context to the Bible? Because a good portion of people coming in never studied the Bible. They don't know the Bible. You know, they don't know that they don't know Jonah from Moses, you know, whatever. And so, so preaching that way, talking that way, that's why we don't have a steeple on our church. That's why I dress cool on Sundays, whatever. That's why our worship team has lights and, and blah, blah, blah. Because you're reaching this, gener- this, this culture that's not Christian. Yeah. And so you cannot reach them like you did a Christian culture. That's fairly obvious. Uh, Nothing big about that. Now let's talk about the next part of this, though. The fear of missionary movements is it colonizes the people instead of reaching them. The fear of third culture post-Christianity is that it colonizes the church and the missionaries. This is huge. So this missiology started taking steps that you've probably heard of some. It got really big in the church world that, that, that we talked about being a missional church. And I still believe we're a missional church. I'm not against that. But missional church oftentimes started meaning, like Alan Hirsch and those guys, started really pushing this idea of of you got to go reach them out there. You got to go to them out there. You got to go to them. As they start sending people out there, they're finding it doesn't work quite like they hoped it would work because they get colonized instead of colonizing the people. Mm-hmm. Colonization means this. Um, for you guys who don't know, in the missions term of what colonization means, uh, and it's actually a big problem with missionaries is that sometimes when you take the gospel to you know, this little African tribe or whatever, you take the gospel there, unintentionally maybe, you end up taking the American culture there. Now they start dressing like you and, you know, singing your songs and all of a sudden you're in a a tribal thing around a fire and they're singing Hillsong or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, and they're singing your songs and you end up trying, you end up trying to make them American church instead of just bringing the gospel. That's what colonization means, by the way, in that context. And so, um, what we're seeing what we're seeing is now, as we do the mission, missiology fight to move people from second from, from, from we are Christian to witnessing to the people over there, is that these people are actually colonizing us. We're not colonizing them. So as we send people to the bar to bring Jesus to the bar, they end up looking more like the bar than bringing Jesus to the bar. That then takes, and not just that, but breathing in this idea all the time, takes this this post-Christian and brings it right back into the church. So the church is not affecting the culture. The culture is affecting the church. Yeah. It's the opposite of the way uh, that it's supposed to be. And so uh, it, it shapes us, not us, them. And that's where the, missiolo- the, the, the missional churches that focus so, so strongly on that 
most of them that I know of have actually turned away from that because it's ultimately not working. It's all about let's be cool, let's be hip, let's make this work, let's have church in the bar, let's have church in the club, let's have church in the whatever. What happens eventually as you do that is that instead of changing the club, instead of changing the bar, instead of changing that, because this culture is so strong and because it's against it, which we'll get to in a minute, against Christianity, it changes the church, not the church changing the culture. And we've all kind of seen that in one way or another. Which is the second thing right here. The danger we face is confusing pre-Christianity with post-Christianity. Now this is where Ludwig got it wrong. Or not even got it wrong, but didn't take it the far enough step. He comes back to Britain and says, Oh my gosh, we have lost Christianity in Britain. Therefore, it must be like it was here. We've gone to pre-Christianity. Pre-Christianity wasn't antagonistic towards Christianity. Right. They didn't know Christianity. They never heard the story of Jesus. You could go witness to somebody in pre-Christianity and it was new to them. They're not antagonistic. And we mistake pre-Christianity for post-Christianity or post-Christianity for pre-Christianity. And so we step in going, well, the problem is they haven't heard the message the right way. They haven't heard this. That's they haven't heard. And we think we're talking to pre-Christians, the first culture, when we're actually talking to third culture people. By the way, whoever's got prayer, do you have prayer? Yes. Just do it later. <clears throat> do it after we're done. Do it when we start eating. It's too important. Um, um, and so there's there's elements of this culture that will look like this. There's some there's some you know tribalism and, and paganism and such that will look a little bit like this. There's there's some similarities, but there is a massive difference. These people in third culture have heard the gospel or heard of the gospel or heard of up something about it, and they've already denied it. It's been taught in secular humanism fundamentally. So, for instance, you used to say, give somebody a Bible. The Bible used to be an aid to faith. Now the Bible is actually turning people away from faith because they already, before they ever read the Bible, they know this is a book of fairy tales, this is a book of lies, this is a book of whatever. Because you're not dealing with this culture that you just give a Bible to. You're dealing with this culture who already thinks they're already antagonistic towards Christianity to start with. So you're not starting on evil, equal footing. You're starting trying to witness to somebody <clears throat> who is against the church. Any thoughts on that? Before I say the next little thing? So post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Okay, Post-Christianity wants to remove the church. So it's a lot harder to witness to somebody like that. Church is in a way. Church is a problem. Which leads to the third thing you have there. Great movements begin with sold-out believers with white-hot faith. Great movements start with sold-out believers with white-hot faith. So how do we do this? Here is the problem with the missional movement the way it has been done. We had the Christians come in, just got saved, and we're like, go back to the bar that you just came from and witness to everybody. They go back to the bar, they witness to everybody, they turn right back into the person they were at the bar, and they don't right. change. Why? Because we're actually sending people out into the lion's den, so to speak. We're sending them out into the wolves, expecting them to be able to change the culture when they, they're, they're, it's not working. Yeah. So this is what I mean when I started out by saying the church has to radically change. And what I mean by the church is we got some that are so far behind even where we are, but even us, and this is the next season that I've been talking about behind the scenes a lot, and you guys have heard me talk about is even with us, we have to get back to the place that you actually go back to the basics of Christianity that create a believer with white-hot faith, sold out, on fire for Christ. Then they can go back out there, and they can attack, they can withstand the wolves, yeah. 
but they can't withstand the wolves when, you know, if you see the statistics of, of under 30s and so with basic Christian things like reading your Bible, it's non-existent. Even the Christian kids, like it's non-existent. It's very low percentages. And so until you teach them to actually know what they believe, why they believe, have a ground foundation of it, you can't send them back out there. So in order to actually reach the culture that we live in, it actually refocuses the church to go, we got to get back to the fundamentals, teach people to read their Bible, teach people to pray, teach them to fall in love with the Lord, teach them to spend time with the Lord. Get back to actual true repentance, actual true uh, life change. I, I was telling Jason yesterday, I don't know, I just got on a rant in my office talking to Jason. Um, but but you guys you guys tell me what happened where did the gradual shift in culture happen where you went from I got saved it was a radical shift in my life everything changed I threw away CDs and music and alcohol and drugs and stuff that nowadays people wouldn't even always say is even wrong I threw away porn I threw away and it was a radical shift I left all of my friends I left everything to follow Jesus moved back in with my mom which is the most embarrassing thing you can do at that age moved back in with my mom because I thought that would help me stay out of trouble I started dressing different trying to fit back in with the church trying to be like them you know and there's the parts of this is good but but the point is this radical shift Ada had that radical shift many of you in this room had that radical shift where did the radical shift go from that to you follow Jesus and it's just a journey that you're on and eventually he'll take away this sin from you and this sin and this and, and like where did that shift go what happened like almost instead of like it is a big deal it is radical it like you don't have to just become righteous overnight as soon as you you know accept Jesus into your heart but like it's a big deal you cannot there are things that you cannot do mm-hmm. you know that like we've made it less extreme and more cool because we want people to think it's cool I think I think one of the things that's damaged that is at the end of the year a lot of um churches will put out like these manuals of like look what God has trusted us to do and people who are in the world will view us as like we're just herding cattle you know like it's casual conversions like we had 6,000 people give their life to Christ if you add it up over 10 years like the whole city should have given their life to Christ right you know what I mean but it's like this casual conversion of like hey come sit in the back room we're going to get your information we're going to send you some really cool emails but really never teaching people what the real next step is in their life and really showing people like hey, the deeper in love you fall with him, the more out of love you have to fall with the world. Like, And kind of teaching people that there's this convictional living, you know, oh, you can keep doing that in moderation. You can keep doing that if you just like it. You yeah, know? the more mature you become, the more you'll realize that that's not good. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't um, know. I mean, I think a lot of the message across the church as a whole has came to Jesus follows you wherever you go, not you follow Jesus wherever he goes. Ooh, that's good. Mm. So... It's a self-fulfillment message. That Jesus will make my life better, right. yeah. easier. Exactly. Not I'm going to die to myself yeah. and yeah. live for him. Society and the church always swings on extreme pendulums. And we came out of an extreme legalistic yeah. church culture. Mm-hmm. And now we're completely on the opposite end of that. Because like, that damaged so barn. many people. Now we're over here where it's just um, a lot more laid back. And just follow Jesus, find your journey, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Good. I think even like the fundamentals of the gospel, like I bet people sitting here in the church don't even know some of the fundamentals or the simplicity of what the gospel even means. That's why I think uh, uh, church failed to listen to the Holy Spirit because that's the reason he gave that helper. Mm-hmm. And right
right now, that's just a knowledge. That's not something. Mm. Mm -hmm. We created a false utopia in the church. I was going to say the tolerance has. Mm. Wow. It's infiltrated mm -hmm. the church. Tolerance for well, that's a it's little sin, or you know that's not a deal breaker with God. That kind of thing. Yeah. Once saved, always saved. Yeah, it's time for grace. Some of the the old teachings, because like. My, my in-laws came from that era, and so Hyper youth group grace. for me Extreme. was like different. She would yeah. teach, right. hey, grace. you can't do this anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, there was no, Miss Nancy was like, There was no, no like, you, I'm not trying to be cool. Yeah, she, like, yeah, yeah it's like, like you it came is. here, so stop watching porn. You <laughs> <laughs> came here, so stop drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Stop hanging out with those people here. And like, it was never a, uh, okay, let's wait. It was like, no, turn now. It was, a, it was more urgent. Hey, yeah. turn away. That's from, a good word, though. Turn urgent. away from the living that you were and live the new life that God yeah. has given you. There is there's, there's a lot of seeker, way more seeker. It was seeker yeah. It's way more. Also, I think Pastor yeah. Tina said, uh, following Jesus is okay, but you had to deny, take it from your cause. Mm -hmm. Well, I know in my life, I would have told you I was a Christian for a long, long time, from the age of nine, that I remember saying a sinner's prayer. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was well into it. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, like, I feel like the strongest spirit of conviction to say, you know, as us as leaders, are we living the way we're trying to lead? Mm -hmm. Are mm -hmm. we saying go while we stay? Mm -hmm. Where in our own lives do we need to take a good, hard look in Scripture and go, am I lined up or not? Yeah, I mean, it's... When you start preaching something like this, how many people are you going to see that walk away? Because they can't handle... Because they can't handle actually self-assess against the Bible. Mm -hmm. Christine and I talked about that in South Shore. In South Shore, if I preach a message that has components to it that makes them want to go rah-rah, mm -hmm. then they track with me. Yeah, they're all about it. If, I, if I'm coming at sin, if I'm coming in that deep... You can literally feel them pull back from it. Like, I can tangibly feel it in the spirit when it's happening. I didn't give a repentance altar call because the Holy Spirit said they won't respond to it. Even as I was closing, I had to go a different direction because I knew they, they weren't there yet. We needed more. I don't know what we needed, but we needed more to, to get there. Um, I think that's I think that's true in many churches. I'm gonna like you, Pastor Bryant, until you step on my toes, and then you're gonna step on my toes, and I'm not gonna like you anymore. <laughs> I think in the the church, I keep using the word moral compass, representing Christ or or the Bible, and over time, somewhere we've put our trust more in the person holding the compass than the compass itself. And that's why I think a lot of times when we see a pastor stumble or fall, the entire church falls. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Or <laughs> very similar to what you just said. Um, oh, I follow Pastor Tina because she's giving me a word that, that makes me feel good. Yeah. Um, but the second that the compass is being more displayed than, than me, now yeah. let me, Isn't that let the me Mark shine that story bit. in Marcel? They shut 11 locations the day he finds out that he's mistreating staff members? Like... Within 45 days, they're foreclosed on 11 locations, like, they, or whatever that was. I think like, they just became their own churches, but. Like I just know that a lot of their doors closed permanently is what I, what I heard. But all that to say, like, yeah. they've got this leader that they're like, ooh, Pastor Mark, yeah? And then he falls and, like, 
Like what happens right now if Mike Todd stepped away from transformation? Like realistically. Well, anytime it's built on a personality, it's Stephen right. Furtick. Yeah. Right. You know. yeah. All, these, all these other churches. Like, like, what happens if he has a moral failure? Right. What happens to Elevation? Yeah. Throw out all their CDs, never play any of their songs again. You know what I mean? Like, but you had it with Perry Noble. Exactly. He was a little before some of your times, but Perry was a beast. <laughs> Perry it's helped. Just, Perry helped Stephen Furtick start. It's not just that church, it's the capital C's reaction to that. Right. You know, the capital C has not responded well to anybody. <laughs> Some of the churches, I've been telling you the whole time that guy's crooked. So like, <laughs> it turns into like a rock throwing contest because, like, <laughs> we said it all the time. I mean, we, I, I think a lot of us heard it, but the joke is like, King David would not have credentials with the AG. <laughs> Dead serious. <laughs> Most of the biblical leaders can be. They never get hired in their churches. Chris has been raising his hand for a while. Yeah, I like Chris. <laughs> 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 I'm just trying to find a time to do it. Are you here to entertain you, Chris? Are you not to entertain you? No, but to your question, your original one, where do we see this shift happen? And I mean, it probably happened before I was born, to be honest, but I think we started to see it. But that just the shift was the 60s is where it started. Okay, it's that what's what Josh said. It's a slight shift. Give it time, and all of a sudden, it you know. So, so with that, just I mean, some of these ideas though, you're talking about people back then, or even 20, 30 years ago, they'd say, "I gave up all of this," but with the idea of saying, "I'm already good," so it's almost like, what? How much do I have to give up? You know, like they're looking at stuff they do in our lives. Why do you need like, God? You're that, already good. That's not that. Yeah, like why do I need God? And then that whole idea of Joshua said it's progress, um, like you follow Jesus, not Jesus follows you. And this whole idea now, oh, Jesus is on a journey with you. And it's like, oh, we're kind of already progressing with Jesus. Like he's almost like an aid, like a help with us. And it's interesting because one thing, and Pastor Tina now talking about it, like she feels the crowd retract. It's huge, I hear, in a lot of these churches is this emphasis on that people are broken and, and not saying that's wrong, like people certainly are, but there's there, a lot of churches are certainly leaving out, I guess if you want to call it the offensive part of you are sinful. Like not only are you broken, but you're broken too because you are actively going against the author of life. And we, like the churches have really moved away from that, that whole hyper grace. And we want to, I mean, America is supremely comfortable and convenience, drive through everything. So it's like, how are we going to make them comfortable? Well, people are broken, so that's what we're going to tell them about. You come to Jesus, he's going to heal you. Well, yeah, but that's only a part of it. Like, if there's no repentance, if there's no acknowledgement for what we have done, like, a lot of these churches have shifted away from that. Saying, I'm going to throw a $5 bill in front of him on the stage. A lot of them are leaving that out, just saying, you are broken. People like, yes, humans are broken, but... When you're saying you're broken, they're also not saying that. I feel like they're leaving out the part like, no, we are morally evil beings. Like, we have messed up. We have sinned. We're against God. And I think there has to be a balance. There's, you don't want to do fire and brimstone, but you also don't want to say. That's why I struggle with a lot of modern Christian music. Because it's all about the listener. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it. Yeah, we were talking about that the other day, Jason, Josh, and I, and they asked me my opinion on SCU worship, and I said, uh, we had a good conversation, but basically I just said, if I can play a Christian song for my non-Christian friends, and they don't even know it's a Christian song, then I have to question whether it's really a worship song. <laughs> so, you, you call it a worship album, and and I don't hear Jesus, I don't hear Father, I don't hear, 
Like, if I hear really obscure terms every now and then, and they can jam with it and not be somewhat offended or uncomfortable with it, then I have to question whether it's really gospel music. Mm. Alright, Again, if it were in it, people would say it's too religious. Mm -hmm. People would say you're just being religious and legalistic. Okay, your next fill in the blank, and I'll wrap this up in a minute. We have to be very aware that we are in danger of being colonized by our secular humanistic culture. You guys have really already jumped all over that point in the next question. But think about this. What is the difference between the average churchgoer and the average non-believer? So I threw this idea out. I think I said it. I said it in the green room. I think I might have said it in here. I don't remember. But I heard somebody say this, and I thought it was profound. They said if you take people on the polar opposite ends of the spectrum, they, they said it this way. They said if you take interns who are working for MSNBC, super liberal, and Fox News going to be on the conservative side, you take interns, you put them in a room, they'll argue back and forth over talking points. But if you look at the way they actually live, where they live, how they spend their money, what movies they go to, what music they listen to, it's identical. Yeah. There's no difference. They're actually arguing over semantic talking points, but the way they live is practically the same. You know, the the save the rainforest person probably isn't actually going to the rainforest time and stuff. So tree. You know, the conservative person probably isn't actually going to church. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. way they live is probably very similar. Yeah. So think about that in context of, of this. So what's the difference between the average churchgoer, not us, not, not the ones we want to point at, but the average person that comes in and out of our church and the average non-believer? Is there really much besides what the talking points are, yeah. in fact, in the way they live? And you guys have already been talking about that, so I don't know if we need to beat that horse, but you already went there. All right, let me give you this last one, and we will... We will wrap up because I'm going to end with a different viewpoint than what I've heard a few of you say right there. Post-Christianity is not a threat to the church, or I'm sorry, is not just a threat to the church, but a threat to Western society as a whole. So, once again, as the foundational pillars of the Christian ethics are removed from society, all of a sudden it starts to implode on itself. I believe that a lot of what we're seeing right now that we've talked about over the last weeks at this point is that very thing in the fundamentals of it and where it's starting at. And so it's imploding on itself. What happens is Christian concept of progress carries with it a natural self-loathing. I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. It's also within the human nature. But Christianity reflects... Christianity... What's the word? Um, teaches us to repent, to call out to God's grace, which then makes it okay that we're not good enough. Right? So we can self-loathe, but then we run to God's grace and God says you are good enough and you are, you know. And so, right, when you carry that ethic in and you self-loathe, loathe, self-hate, self-hatred, without grace and without God, it's just self-hatred. Wow. Anxiety, depression, all that skyrockets. But not only that, you hate everything around you even though it's a blessing. Yeah. So inside of the utopia... I hate this place. I hate that. You're looking for everything wrong. You see everything wrong. And there's nowhere to go with that self-loathing because God's not there. So what happens is you start eventually hating America. Where are we at right now? You know, we have the Marxist stuff, which is coming up smaller and Antifa and all that. It's smaller, but it's growing and it's turning into it. Even though this country has made me profitable, even though it's done whatever, I hate this country. And it turns into a hatred that eventually self-destructs itself. It falls upon itself. You know, Dr. Brown said years ago, 
He said the LGBTQ movement has the seeds of its own destruction within itself. As soon as it turns its own rules onto itself, it's going to implode. You know, it'll start with the with the uh, 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 pedophilia stuff. Because if you're going to accept homosexual marriage, you got to accept pedophilia marriage, not just you got to accept animal what, what's it bestiality. bestiality. You got because it's all the same arguments. You got to accept all of it. Well, that works except for we have enough of the moral conscience in America still to go. That's wrong. Yeah. That's just wrong. Yeah. And it starts imploding on itself. That's the way. That's the way sin does. So that's what I believe we're starting to see in America today. Now, here's the thing. The same way Christians go through through episodes of doubt, right now we are in a moment where the progressive secular humanism idea is going through a moment of doubt. I think we're at the beginning of it. I think it's going to get a lot worse. Um, food's here, Jason. I think we're at the beginning of it, but it's going to get a lot worse. When people are in doubt is when they can change. When they go, hey, this isn't working. That's when they can go, well, what does work? It's the same thing with Christianity. If you got somebody doubting their faith, atheists love it, right? Atheists are going to step right in. Well, I'll tell you why you're doubting your faith because, you know, it's all a myth and whatever. And, and right, they'll step right in because it's, it's leaving a void. Our culture is in a moment of doubt, and I believe it's the very beginning stages of this moment of doubt that's going to come bigger. They're looking around. They don't have all the answers. Nobody's teaching them all this stuff. Nobody's having these conversations on a national scheme. But they're seeing, hey, what's going on? What's happening? It's like they're being shaken and awoken. What's happening in our world right now? What's going on? Is that glory days? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's the glory. <laughs> so when, when, you, when you say that, so it seems on the outside that, the, that, had they, that they have their crap together. It seems that they are very much like, this is what we believe, this is what we're doing. It's like the, the loud minority is pushing progress, and it seems like they're... They're not confused and they're not in doubt. So, how do you kind of navigate that? Well, look, of, well like, of course, there's going to be a, a loud majority on the far ends of both ends. But they're, you know, they they did a study not all that long ago, and um, the people that make the talking points on both ends, I don't remember exact numbers, but it was something like on the far right is six percent of the population that are on the extreme, will not change, fight for everything on the far right, and it's like eight percent on the far left. All of the talking points get made up by those two groups. Which is 14%, is that right? 8 plus 6, 14%. That means there's there's 86% of the population somewhere in between that. Right. And that's the that's the moral majority, that's the quiet majority the ones you don't hear about. But it's these two ends that they make all the noise and they become because their voices are very, you know, it's just like in the church world. You get three people mad, and it sounds like everybody's mad at me. It's not that way. It's these two ends that get all the talking point, get all the hype, and everybody in the middle goes, Oh my gosh, everybody's that way. Everybody no, no, they're not. It's real easy. Here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road. It might be harder for us in the church world, but it's like, oh, everybody believes that. But then just go talk to your friends. Go talk to people you know. Yeah. And rarely do people actually end on those extremes. might be a few, but it's a very small percentage. So anyway, where was I at? All right, so, um, so the shaking is happening right now. There's a moment of doubt, and I think it's going to get more doubting with that group that's in the middle. The moments of doubt. Here's the thing is that utopia works on the outside. It does not work for your anxiety, your stress. It does not give any meaning. Life, life without meaning is purposeless. There's no meaning of life. There's no purpose of life. And so it does not give any meaning. And there's a shaking that's happening. Okay, 
And that is what I keep referring to as the divide that's coming in the church. There's a shaking, and as things shake and the crookie crumbles, people will end up on this side, and people will end up on this side. And that's where I believe that revival happens. And this is why, in not the traditional sense of revival necessarily, this is why I believe that revival happens, because people wake up to, hey, this isn't working. We've been lulled to sleep. This slow fade that's so slow that we didn't even recognize it's happening until we have a meeting like this and we're all like, what in the world's going on? You know, and, and, and this slow fade, and then once you wake up and you're like, wait a minute, we just, we just said that, that homosexuality is the same as race, the civil rights? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Right, so this is slow fade. Something jars us. We got a global pandemic. We got injustice. We got racial tension. We got people pulling down statues. We got people blocking streets. Something is jarring us in America yeah. right now. <laughs> Um, and so with the jarring, it comes revival. Now, when you start reflecting, when you start looking deep on that, that's where I believe that, that out of the revival, I don't know if it's a revival. I mean, when I say revival, I don't mean like right the second. I don't know if it's a revival that ends up in people's homes rather than big centers like this. I don't know what it looks like. But at some point, people come to their senses and go, this isn't working, a lot of people. And that divide begins going down. And this is where... I would be slightly different because I don't think as this happens, I think people want to hear the truth. I don't think they're backing up from it. The more the shaking happens, the more people are going, I need something to smack me in the face and call me to order. And in the Christian world, I think you end up crumbling here. And so um, I believe the preaching shifts. I'm different than a lot of you in that I think there's seasons for preaching different ways. So you never want to water down the gospel. But at the same time, if the church, if we're trying to witness to people by getting them to come into the church, you got to speak in a way they hear right. it, blah, blah, blah. There was a season where that was good because of prosperity. You could get away with that and lead people to Jesus that way. As shaking comes and divide happens, you can't do that anymore. So it's just a season of what how you preach. Let's be real. None of us preach like Peter did. No, nobody's like that. That Jesus that you crucified, nobody's getting saved from that because they're going to be like, like this is just not the way people talk anymore. It's the season of that time period, right? It's like gee, Peter was harsh, bro, <laughs> in his sermons. Um, but the divide uh, uh, starts to happen. And then I'll answer Debbie's question, then I'll come back for just tell you why we're, why we're having this conversation. When you say shaking, is the shaking Oh, shaking everything, shaking society, which is all of it. Yeah, I mean, it's changing everything. Like, like right now, I don't know if you guys have seen this. Houses are selling like, like never before. Cars, people are spending money in a whole different way. We just went. Our boat was in the shop forever, and I go by the boat place, and there's usually thirty boats up front or something. There's a bunch, like it's packed, you know, boat lot. There's like five or six, and I go in, and I was talking to the guy. I'm like, dude, where's all the inventory? He's like, we can't keep it in stock. He's like, everybody's not going to the bar, so they have a little extra money, and they find it. Do There's a whole shaking happening in general. And y- y'all heard me say this. So, so crisis is an accelerant. Crisis speeds everything up. I've pretty much talked about that in a positive sense, usually. It's like it speeds everything up in the church world. We'll have more progress. More progress will happen. It also speeds up society. So the things that we would have been facing 10 years ago, they say in one year it's a 10-year change. The things we would have been facing 10 years ago in society is now a one-year thing. LGBTQ movement coming right behind the Black Lives Matter organization and all that comes right behind that. It's not a 10-year thing. What would have been 10 years is right here. So the shaking is happening faster. 
It's almost like birth pains that come faster and faster and faster, but that's a whole other message for another time. Go ahead. I have just a question. You might be getting to this, but practically speaking, given all of this, how do we, sitting in this room, working out a rise, how do we respond to this? Like, and, and I don't just mean praying and fasting and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking professionally, vocationally speaking. How do we respond to all of this? I think part of that is what I was, was literally the next thing I was going to say. So this is where I wanted to end because I wanted to, I want you guys to go through the pro thought process with me to get to where we're going to end up because a bunch of you are preaching this next series, not one or two of you. There's eight of you over 13 weeks. A bunch of you are preaching the next series. Here's why and how we are doing the next series and beyond in our church. So we chose the book of Revelation because it will attract people and we live in end times and it's scary for people and whatever, it'll attract people, right? The book of, the Re book of Revelation is not about revelation. It's not going to be about revelation. It's about discipleship. We are shifting. We are shifting from talking to the world about Christ to talking to believers about Christ while at the same time recognizing the world's in the room and we're going to honor you and all that. But, but when you talk to a Christian, you talk in a whole different way than when you talk to a non-Christian. Forever in our church, we've had the, the missiology and, and, and we're talking to an unbelieving world. That has just shifted because the divide is happening. Um, the, church, the church persecuted is the church pure. And when the church is pure, it's powerful. The church polluted is the church popular is the church polluted. And when the church is polluted, it's puny. Okay. One second. One second. <laughs> I'm not the original. I might have adjusted it for me. I don't know who said it originally, but the church popular is the church polluted, and when the church is polluted, it's puny. <laughs> Mike would love that. All the peas. When the church is popular, the church is is the church popular is the church polluted, and the polluted church is puny. The church power. The 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 church. The church pure, which is also the persecuted church, you could throw that in there. The persecuted church is the pure church, or the church pure is the church with power. Um, the church persecuted is the church pure, the church with power. So this is my this is my prediction. This is my this is my futurist wannabe Brent American hat prediction prophet futurist. This is my prediction as. This divide happens. Some of us are old enough to remember Sunday night church. Mm -hmm. Come on, somebody. There was a joke about Sunday night church. Sunday night church was always better than Sunday morning church because the people at Sunday night church wanted yeah. to be there. You lost your casual Christians on Sunday night. So like the moves of God, like it wasn't always the best sermons on Sunday night, to be honest with you. Some of the worship team wasn't there on Sunday night. It wasn't, it wasn't the best performance, so to speak, on Sunday night, you know, right? But Sunday night was like people got healed, yeah. like your life got touched. Why? Because the people coming back on Sunday night were generally going to be more, you know, <clears throat> they were hungry. As the church is divided, and I think we're seeing this in a limited capacity right now, but as the church is divided, you end up with a church that is hungry that's attending that's being there. Now, that does not mean people that are not attending our church right now are not hungry because we're in a pandemic and there's legitimate things. I'm not saying, you know, whatever family, you know. I think I used the drafts when we were talking yesterday. Like, I'm not saying the drafts aren't Christians and they're not hungry. You know, they have concerns. You know, that's not what I'm saying. I, mean, I am saying that the ones who are here are hungry. There's, there's reasons, there's excuses not to come to church. And there's 30 or 40% of every church that if they have an excuse not to come, they're not going to come. You know, it's Labor Day weekend. You going anywhere? No, but I'm not going to church. 
whatever. Right. <laughs> it's just what people do. So it creates a more pure church. The persecution that's coming will also make the church a little bit more pure. pure. And as it becomes more pure, it becomes more powerful. And as it becomes more powerful, you get revival. And what starts as an S as a bell curve ends up as what they call a swivel curve or an S curve that comes back up. How would you explain this in, in a practical level? Um, in, I'll come back to that. How would you explain this in a practical level? So repentance is always for your good. So way back, Karen talked about the question of, of or, or saying the question of like you used to just say don't do this. You don't want to be you know clothesline preachers or whatever. Here's the simple fact that when you're talking to teenagers, when you're talking to whoever about this, freedom left to itself is destructive. If it doesn't have responsibility attached to it, you will not have meaning in life. There is more to life than freedom. You got to have meaning. You want to have worth. You want to have value. Here's the thing. When I got married to Ada, it said I cannot go have sex with anybody I want to anymore. I lost freedom in order to have purpose and meaning in my life. When I had children, when we had kids, all of a sudden I lost time freedom. I can't just spend my time any way I want to now. I got responsibilities. But with the loss of freedom, it added meaning. And with meaning, you find true happiness and joy and contentment. But you got to frame it in that way when you're talking to people. It's the, the die to yourself, follow Christ... We said, well, with the die to yourself, follow Christ, if you frame it the right way, actually is better because it creates meaning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's die to yourself, but it's not like that's the worst life you're ever going to live and you're not going to have any fun. And, right. you know, yeah, can you not watch this TV show? But is your life really sucked because you didn't watch this show? Right. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't have the nightmares because of it. Maybe you don't have the yeah. thoughts because of it. Maybe you don't have the whatever that comes with it. Anyway. So I believe that revival is coming. I believe that attendance will boost. I don't know how soon this is. I'm not saying this is next month. That's not it. I don't know how soon this is. I'm not, I'm not saying what it's going to look like. But when persecution comes again, it's going to prepare for this. And so the future of our church, this first series was way longer than I thought it was going to be. This first series is all around discipleship. After that, and these might not be in this order, but we will do one all about um, um, apologetics. But not traditional apologetics in just the traditional sense. But here's what's coming. The LGBT community is going to throw the Bible down and say, this has been translated a hundred different ways. People believe Some people believe it's okay to be homosexual. Some people don't. We need to attack that head on. Yeah. Like we just said with our kids, they shouldn't hear the argument for the first time out there. They need to hear both sides of the argument and make up their mind, what do you believe about these things that are dividing the church? And you need to decide right now which side of the divide you're on. So it's not just an apologetic series of cool, you know, is there dinosaurs in the Bible? You know, that, that's fun. But these are very purposeful apologetics, almost cultural apologetics for what we're facing right now. I thought I'd just ask you that last night. Is there dinosaurs in the Bible? Yeah. That's a good question. She did, but I was like, not not big, no, no. <laughs> 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 go back to watch the like, series. Uh, go, go back to watch the Were you in the Jurassic series where I talked about that? No. It's online. Go watch it or have her watch it or whatever. Have her watch it? <laughs> Dude, kids love it, bro. We're talking about dinosaurs in the Bible, bro. It's fun. Um, so apologetics. And the other one is uh, is is hearing hearing the voice of God. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. 
to me, yeah. when I kind of stepped back and thought, okay, if we're going to pe put people through a tribulation, not the tribulation, a tribulation, if we're going to put people through or the people are going to walk through a tribulation, what do they need to know? This discipleship series, which is really the dividing, listen, this is what we believe. You know, the church of Laodicea, are you hot or cold or lukewarm? Because you cannot be both. You've got to choose now. Persecution's coming. You choose which side of this fence you're going to be on. This discipleship series, which is this real strong, this is what we believe. You know, going back, some, I've never preached on the return of Christ. And I don't honestly believe, I don't know if I've ever, period, preached on the return of Christ. Except maybe in youth when I did a whole series about the end of the world, but it would have been a passing, Jesus returning kind of thing. Um, going back to some of those fundamental things, the blood of Jesus Christ. How do you overcome in Revelation? It's the blood of Jesus Christ, the word of your testimony. Uh, you know, not, not, not protecting your life. Um, so that discipleship, apologetics, which is specific to what we're learning, what we're seeing in our society and how to respond, and hearing the voice of God. If you have those three things, you can make it through a tribulation. So that's the next. We haven't gotten to these two. And they may not be in that order. You know, I don't know if one will come before the other. But uh, that's, that's my long spiel. <laughs> Any last questions or comments? I have a comment. Um, I know we do wins an opportunity, but an opportunity is we need to record this, bro. Yeah. I just did. Yeah. I recorded it for Ken. Save, send you send that to me? I have a friend of mine that I want to send that to. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.